Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor and enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Amy Bills. Hello. And together, we'll try and answer the question, how do you solve a problem like education book clubs? But first, Chris, what are you reading for? This week, breaking, um, or should I say keeping with the tradition that we seem to have set recently, where what you're reading for becomes anything at all, not necessarily just reading. Um, the what you're reading for I'm going with is um, a podcast that I listened to um, called The Reading League Podcast. And it was an interview with Linnea Erry, who is, for those people who are um, not hugely into reading research, she is the person responsible for the phrase orthographic mapping, a real pioneer of understanding aspects of reading fluency. I'd highly recommend the podcast. It's fascinating not just to hear her sharing her expertise, but to hear the obstacles that she overcame through her career relating to the different perceptions about reading was um, really interesting too. So I'd highly recommend you give that a go. So Amy, what are you reading for? I'm, I've got two books on the go. I'm a little bit of a, a strange reader in that I like to bring concepts together rather than books um, or, or, or papers in one go sometimes. So I'm reading um, Cognitive Apprenticeship in Action, edited by John Thompson, alongside Ruth Ashby's um, Curriculum, Culture and Theory book. And I'm finding it fascinating to see how um, the teachers in John's school are applying that subject specific um, skill set, knowledge, and domain, and, and how I'm linking that up with the guidance in Ruth's book around the key questions for each subject. Um, so, yeah, fascinating, fascinating so far. It's interesting you should say that because, well, obviously, I'm about to ask Kieran what he's reading for, but um, we've had the discussion in the past where Kieran has said that he often will have nine or 10 books on the go and he's reading chunks of them. And I've always found that quite impressive because I'm someone who has to stick to one or two. I might have a fiction book and non-fiction on the go, but once I'm dedicated to something, I basically have to finish it or I have to ditch it. And usually the former, regardless of how much I don't like the book, I'm just a bit of a, so I'm someone who has to complete stuff like that. But anyway, what are you reading for, Kieran? You know, um, we, we only thought we were readers. You know, I, I, I love that idea of putting the, of the concepts together. That's, I'm, I'm going to try and incorporate it. Because like you said, Chris, you know, I've got about 22 unfinished books around, around the house at the moment. You know, and some of them are only maybe three or four pages in. Um, like that history of Europe you gave me that I claimed to be reading on a, on a previous episode. Um, but this week I am reading... The Art and Science of Teaching Primary Reading, which I said oh, a while ago that this could possibly be the most important education book released since Daniel Williams' Why Don't Students Like School? And I think from the reception, we have seen that that is quite possibly the case, you know, because obviously we were lucky to read an early draft. And I think you have absolutely hit the nail Capture Design Geist and congratulations, Chris, on a fantastic release. Well, that's obviously far too generous, but I, I'll, I'll appreciate the kind words regardless. 
So the focus of this episode is education book clubs. And I think this is going to be one of those occasions where Chris and I take a back seat and we sort of give you the floor, Amy, because I know that soon you plan on bringing out, and I think it might be trust-wide, um, the um, book clubs with a focus on professional development. So I think it might be useful before we start, if Amy, you want to give us a brief background, sort of introduction to yourself, um, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, so um, I'm Amy Bills. I'm currently the Regional Education Director um, for six primary academies in the West Midlands for Academy Transformation Trust. And then from the 1st of September, I'll be the Deputy CEO at the Diocese of Coventry Multi-Academy Trust. Um, very, very lucky to have a very, very supportive CEO in my current role and an equally supportive CEO in my soon-to-be role um, who are both advocates of the importance of professional reading, conversation around reading, um, and, and the importance of that professional dialogue. So that's really exciting. I think it, it probably goes without saying that Chris and I are definitely on board with professional reading. You know, I know when I did the sort of some background reading for the chapter in Thinking Deeply About Primary Mathematics, you know, quite often the study or the, the number 25% comes up, and you know, in terms of that's how many teachers will have read something in the last 12 months, you know, other than a, a pamphlet. So I think, you know, the more we can do to instill it as a default behavior, I think the, be the, the better. And so the, I, I suppose that leads in quite nicely to the first question. Amy, why would we start an education book club? So I think that's, that's really powerful because when I think back to my own time in the classroom as a classroom teacher, it wasn't default for me. And when I look back and I think about why that was, I think I had the most supportive leadership team I could have ever wished for. But I taught in the time when um, everything that glittered was probably the most important aspect of your work. So the six variations of color-coded differentiated worksheets, the laminating and chopping, um, the marking in four different colors and responding to the responses. And so when I think back, I think actually that's probably because I didn't have time to read. The irony of it is if I had read, then I would not have been doing all of those things or I at least would have been much more confident and knowledgeable to go and have conversations around why we were doing those things. Um, so a big part of the rationale for me is, I think I'm in a very privileged position to be able to um, share, disseminate, distill in some ways, a lot of the reading that's out there. Um, and I think that's probably one of the biggest impacts I can have directly on the children in our classrooms without actually standing at the front of their classroom is to be able to support the experts around them to continuously develop their expertise. I love that idea. I mean, the, the way that you've described that, effectively the idea of it being about empowerment, empowerment of the individuals in the classroom is, yeah, it's such an important aspect of professional, I was about to say professional reading. I mean, professional reading is absolutely one of the most effective ways to deal with this sort of thing, but it can be videos, it can be <clears throat> podcasts, etc. But it's, it, yeah, it's that sense of empowerment. I spent the first half of my career not really engaged with 
anything in that form no no books no podcasts and I sort of developed as a teacher and I got better as a teacher but I was definitely not empowered as a teacher I didn't feel like I was gaining control of what I was doing even as I perhaps became more adept at certain parts of it so yeah I love that idea of empowerment I guess the thing that follows that then is if you're about to roll this out trust wide what does this entail? What kind of bits and pieces have you got planned in order to hopefully make this work? So first and foremost, in my role, I can curate and try to bring together um, what we know, what the research tells us um, are those best bets approaches or, or what is evidence informed practice. And I think there's a lot of furore around that at the minute. Um, and that's great because what that actually means is we're shining a spotlight on it. And that can only be a positive thing because it's prompting discussion and conversation. But for schools, academies, colleagues, trusts who haven't necessarily had that professional learning, let's call it, rather than reading as a default behavior, I think one of the things that we can do very quickly is to bring together some of those best bets, some of that evidence-based practice and some of those key conversations so that we can begin to scaffold those conversations around what we know works. Um, so one of the things that, that we're going to look to do is to bring together in the first year some really key concepts, ideas and approaches that we know, regardless of age, phase, subject um, or role, colleagues will gain from. Because there has to be a takeaway for everyone. I think that, that there's a better level of engagement when there's something tangible very quickly for everybody. But also for me, one of the long-term goals is building that culture or you know it's already there developing that culture nurturing the culture of professional learning um talking about teaching professional dialogue um, i think it's really really important so when you say that um you're kind of curating the content around key concepts ideas approaches etc is there and at the moment you're looking at the stuff that's quite um, for want of a better phrase broad generic something that can apply to everyone across the trust do you think a time will come where you might want to eventually be more specific and start to say well actually we've seen certain prior priorities across the trust relating to um thinking about uh, collaborative learning or relating to questioning or whatever it might be and we want to focus on this or do you think that it's likely to stay in the generic side of things over the longer term Absolutely, um, strategic direction and oversight over time. So there'll be a, there'll be a couple of layers. There'll be an initial um, book club where there'll be quite generic themes or perhaps um, new books that have been released um, that that colleagues all want to talk about or are um, recommended by other colleagues, and that's always something that we will look to engage in. But there's an additional layer. Um, that will evolve alongside this, which are our network groups. So our maths leaders, for example, come together termly, our early years leaders, 
um, our aspiring and emerging senior leaders in network groups. So again, a, a privilege that I have is knowing the improvement priorities for each of our academies, but also for each of our subject or network groups, which means that again, when we're looking at curating texts, podcasts, access to that professional learning, it can become more and more bespoke over time. And actually then the library or frame of reference, if you like, for all of our colleagues, regardless of their role, broadens. And actually then this becomes an approach to professional learning that isn't reliant on me or anybody else for that matter, because it's become an embedded um, routine, if you like, and it's part of our strategic development, it's part of our educational improvement, both in terms of teachers' pedagogy, but also what we know and how our own learning evolves. Um, and ultimately, what we can, obviously, relative to age, phase and stage, but also what our children and young people know about their learning and what works for them. Um, yeah, so it, this is um, the start of what I hope will be um, just, a, just a drop in the ocean in terms of our professional learning collectively, mine included. One of the key aspects, one of the key positive parts of this is you potentially developing a shared language across the trust. I mean, to an extent, the whole thing that you've said so far speaks to arguably the advantages of a trust. I mean, I work in a relatively small trust where maybe the economies of scale don't quite work in the same way. But thinking about what you've described here makes me think about perhaps the rationale behind you know, the original multi-academy trust idea. Viewing professional development itself as an ongoing learning process and a curriculum of its own, you know, and I think as, as our, we continue to develop our knowledge of the, the, the curriculum that we design for our children and young people and the way in which we deliver it, it's equally important to have that curriculum mindset about professional learning. It's the, it's, the, it's the kind of meticulous preparation that I absolutely love, you know, and you can tell that having done the hard work thinking through that sequence and, and the journey you want your teachers to go on over the next X number of years um, will pay off in the long run because then when you're tired in the middle of term five, like you say, it becomes something that just happens because you've done, you've done the legwork. And um, yeah, sounds fantastic. And is your pin tweet your collection of CPD materials at the minute? It's worth sharing that you released that last week. My pinned tweet at the moment is, I think um, really encapsulates the beauty of Twitter because what it essentially enabled me to do is collectively over the last, only over the last kind of month or so, when the principals who I am currently privileged to work alongside are absolutely exhausted as is most of the sector. However, not losing the kind of limitless Tigger-esque nature of, you know, just relentless positivity that we seem to just be able to, to kind of keep motoring on with, is all the DFE guidance, all of the, um, you know, emergence of latest evidence-based um, guidance from the EEF, all of that kind of thing, to be able to pull that together 
and to be able to link and hyperlink and here's a really short helpful blog that will explain that for you here's a really brilliant resource that puts that into practice so my pin tweet at the moment is is a set of slides that i created for the principles that i work with um, but hope would be helpful to others and if you just click on each image within each slide it will take you to a YouTube video that helps explain that or a handy little summary that will help distill that. Um, because we don't always have time to read absolutely everything all the time and stay. It's so hard, isn't it, to stay alive to such uh, an ever-changing landscape at the moment. Um, yeah, so that that's the pin tweet. But there's plenty, there's podcasts in there, there's blogs in there, but there's also... Um, you know, Ofsted, DFE summaries, that kind of thing. Yeah, and the the downside to that Discord thread where we're sharing all our books is that I'm going to have to quit my job to um, to read all the books that people keep <laughs> recommending. Like I, I downloaded that um, that feedback one, so I'm getting ready to listen to that. But there's so many on there, you know, I think I must be the only person who hasn't listened or read the little history of religion since Adam Smith talked about it. It's a, it seems to be quite popular too. You're not the only one because I've not read that either. So there you go. That makes two. <laughs> but it is time and you have to, you have to, I think I'm quite, um, I'm quite a scatty reader in that way. Like I'll, I'll take a chapter from something and a blog from something else. But then there'll, there'll be times where I'll read a book start to finish, but then I'll end up rereading in some ways because it will remind me of something else that I've read and take me back to it. Um, and also it depends on what you're working on so a lot of the time if I'm um, supporting a particular academy with a particular aspect of their work then I will spend the week prior to that rereading around that particular area so that I'm um, retrieval practice right so that I'm brushing up on my knowledge and expertise so that what I can be confident is the advice I'm giving is rooted in what we know it's rooted in evidence it's rooted in the most recent guidance um, and, and set of expertise that we can we can get out because i think particularly in a role like mine it's not about having all the answers it's about asking the right questions in that moment in the environment and being able to either signpost or draw upon the most helpful expertise i think that's a really important point because it can sometimes seem on social media like people are remembering everything they've ever read but definitely chris and i will revisit stuff you know the day before we have a chat here because there's absolutely no way you know given the amount you know the amount of years we've been teaching the amount of stuff we've come across and so i think yeah that that, that really helps sort of i reckon people listening and thinking oh i'm never going to keep up with this but actually you know reading things more than once you know can really help our professional development Something you mentioned, Amy, was you were talking about um, how it goes without saying that we don't have time to read everything and that time constraints are always uh, something at the forefront of teachers and senior leaders' mind. When it comes to a, a book club, are there things that you've considered or is this something that's part of it where you're putting into place the the time aside for whoever's participating to read that book i mean obviously that would depend on the other structures within your academies because i've worked in certain schools where if you said to a teacher 
over the next few weeks, read this book ready for X, it would be completely unreasonable because they're already working 55 or 60 hours a week. I've also worked in schools where you could say, read this book over the next two or three weeks, please. And it's absolutely fine because they already have significantly beyond their um, statutory requirement for PPA. So I'm hoping to be able to share um, the entire year's books for the book club at the beginning of the academic year so that colleagues have got lots of time to either read, read a snippet or read the blurb. Is this something that I want to come and engage in? Because actually, when I've been to the book club, I might want to read it afterwards. But also for our head teachers, it might be that actually that particular one would be great for this particular colleague. This particular one's going to be brilliant for my whole staff because it's absolutely, um, you know, singing our priorities through the whole year. And it might be that they might want to, colleagues might want to pick up the phone and say, right, Amy, this is a text that which actually we've no prior knowledge of at all. Talk me through, who is it best for? You know, how might we best engage with that particular one? Um, because also one of the benefits of, of, there are many, many benefits of being in a multi-academy trust. I'm obviously biased, but I also only speak what I genuinely, genuinely believe, and there are. One of the difficulties, however, with something like this sometimes is you can't always make everything absolutely perfect for everybody. So everything has to be with a contextual wisdom. So what I'm aiming for really with this is texts that are in this book club that is for our entire organisation will be applicable to everybody in some way. But actually, with professional learning overall, the CPD approach has to be bespoke to each of our academies based on their priorities, their colleagues' point in their development um, and their own personal learning journeys in that sense. So it's having that real balance of um, things that will support and enable everybody to grow, to engage, and to have that trust-wide dialogue and conversation back to the shared language, but that people will be able to take and apply in their own context um, or discuss in their own context, linked to their own children, communities, um, and how it would sit within their individual priorities. Really like that sense of flexibility that you've described there. But I, yeah, I love the idea of being able to say, look, Come and come and, and come and enjoy the book club, having read the verb, sorry, the blurb from a book or whatever it might be, and then you can read it from there if you want to. Equally, people can turn up having, you know, devoured a book and know it inside out. I think that flexibility is really sensible. It also reminds me of the fact that quite often when I recommend a book to colleagues, it often isn't the whole thing I'm recommending. It's quite often have a look at this chapter. This is a five or ten minute read. This this goes into real detail about the exact things we've been discussing in this conversation and maybe puts it in a different light try this rather than you know putting a whole book in people's hands though obviously that is something i do occasionally um, and we also depending on the context we're bringing as the reader we all take different things from everything that we read also so coming back to our own, so my opinion is that we've all got 
a professional and a moral obligation in our sector to continuously strive for um, professional learning, lifelong learning um, and continuous improvement. Because I think that's, we should expect and want that for ourselves. But we have to create the climate in which we are able to do that and, and where our workload enables that and our the support around us enables that. But I also think we, so we, we come at everything with our own unique context and knowledge as a reader. And actually it comes back to schema, doesn't it? Because everything we read builds on our existing schema. And I think where there's a real power in something like a book club is that you prompt that conversation and actually you never know the tangent upon which colleagues are gonna, are gonna go down or build when they then begin to talk about it with each other. And what you end up with across that, the brilliance of, of a collaborative network across a trust is people's unique contexts mean that their experience in the application of something is totally different. And then you get that whole conversation around, well, that didn't work, why didn't it work? How could it have worked? And then you get that, that dialogue again, like I say, that doesn't become reliant on the structure of a, of a book club or the facilitation of somebody like me in my role, but it just becomes the habitual norm that we talk about our professional learning and we talk about teaching routinely. Um, and, and we know that whatever form professional development takes, it's one of our best bets in terms of school improvement. And it's one of our best bets in terms of raising standards for our children and young people, which ultimately is what we're all here for. How, how frequently are you looking to run this book club? Is it a half-termly thing, a weekly thing, a fortnightly thing? What do you think is a reasonable balance for that? Or is, it, or is this something, again, this might not be something that you've decided upon yet. So you may think it's mundane, but that is so important, isn't it? And if you're a member of staff attending this, if you're a head teacher wanting to get staff to attend this, absolutely crucial. So initially we thought half-termly felt about right for the first year. However, when engaging with, um, looking at books and engaging with authors, actually we're really, really lucky and people have been so generous with their time and their expertise that I think we're gonna be looking at monthly for this academic year and we'll see. We'll take, really, really important that we always, always seek feedback on everything that we do. So every aspect of our CPD, we will seek to evaluate and it will evolve as we go. Similarly with this. So if we find at the end of the academic year that that's felt about right, that's great. That's something that we probably would look to stick with and, and look at it monthly. If it's felt a little bit much, then maybe we have we do it a little bit less frequently next year. Equally, if we've had a brilliant appetite for it, um, we may look to build a more specific, subject specific um, aspect to it. And actually we might run more, more often, but in a more specific domain or remit that would mean actually colleagues would still not attend more often necessarily, but that that offer would be broader and the opportunities would be wider. Um, so we're looking monthly at the moment and we're looking um, logistically, we're looking at around an hour at around four o'clock but that we would record it because I think one of the most powerful things that we've been able to do um, particularly throughout the last 12 to 18 months is make that CPD accessible without the limit of 
time and place. Um, so I'm hoping that we can kind of reduce as many barriers as possible to access and engagement. And colleagues will help me with that as we go because their feedback will be crucial. And we can, you know, they're the things that we can look to change and evolve over time. Reducing those barriers that you, the ones you've described there can be really powerful in a school. One of the things I learned over lockdown and, and over the past few months, et cetera, through being forced to record CPD rather than, for want of a better phrase, deliver and practice in the flesh, has been how many more people across the school who otherwise wouldn't be expected to, certainly not necessarily at the moment, are um, paid to attend CPD, are just interested in it voluntarily and are doing bits and pieces in their own time. But they're happy to do that in half an hour here or there over a weekend, but they just can't commit to it at four o'clock on a Wednesday, for example. So it's been something that's been a bit of an eye-opener for me, and particularly when it comes to the professional development of everyone across the school, not just the um, teachers and senior leaders. And I think it's something that, as a sector, we are slightly late to the party with in terms of the flex around how we work, how we learn. Um, and, and obviously, for colleagues who are front-facing in classrooms, we, although we've done that remotely as a sector over the last 12 to 18 months, we are less flexible, aren't we? Because we're in the rhythm of a school day, we're in the rhythm of an academic year. But I think with our own professional learning, certainly speaking from my experience, you know, I will happily, readily, actively seek to engage in some kind of CPD in inverted commas because that is professional learning when I'm listening to a podcast you know on a Saturday morning at nine o'clock or whatever it might be or, or engaging in you know I mean look at things like research ed um, and, and how, how that kind of thing has, has grown and evolved and those things have always been there but I think we're starting to see that actually we make we, we look at those barriers and try and eradicate them we make it more accessible to more colleagues in the sector, and that can only be a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it's also worth noting, when I think back to the time I spent, the decade or so I spent in the classroom, the number of times I would go to a staff meeting, knowing it was going to be going from 3.30 till 5 o'clock, and I'd had a hell of a day. And even when it was good quality professional development, I thought, well, this is something I'm really interested in. Just desperately trying to keep myself awake, trying to keep myself engaged. Even when it was really good, there was part of me that just thought, can I not do this at the weekend? Can I not do this once I've had my dinner or whatever it was, because you just, you know, you're knackered. So um, yeah, the idea of doing a book club, but also filming aspects of it or filming the whole thing so that people can engage at a later date or re-engage with it if they've, you know, lost the drift live for whatever reason it might be. Yeah, it sounds like a really powerful way of doing things. And I think one of the things that we've talked about with a with a book or a paper is that I'm a I'm a massive rereader. I will go back and reread. And so if we can make that possible with things like those professional conversations that you would have in a book club or through a podcast or whatever it might be, actually going back to how we empower our colleagues, we're empowering them with the access to that material 
at whatever time they need it or whatever time they're in the middle of that piece of work or thought process or whatever it might be. If I may say, one of the other things that I, I loved in what you were saying is, I mean, you must have used the word discussion seven or eight times. I mean, and that's the nature of a book club. It isn't just let's enjoy a book. It is let's pick it apart. Let's see where we, we agree. Let's see where we disagree. And it goes back to something that I think was mentioned earlier in the podcast where we were talking about the um, EEF's recent guidance or its discussion of research, etc., and how there's been a bit of uh, pushback relating to reading research, which at first can seem quite challenging, but actually in the long run, I'm sure that's going to serve teachers well. It's only when you get a bit of pushback that you start to understand your own position, to defend your position, to think, well, does actually every aspect of this make sense? I mean, I've, without going into details, I've had some conversations like that on Twitter recently. And the first thing that happens is you feel a bit defensive. You feel like someone's giving you a hard time, but actually you go away and you think, and you, if you're anything like me, you, you play out discussions and arguments um, in your mind and you start thinking, well, actually, yeah, I, I can see where they're coming from, but this is why I think this. I, th I think the power of having discussions around books, having disagreements around books, it, again, it comes back to that idea I was talking about earlier, this idea of empowering teachers. Um, as soon as they can defend their positions, as well as hold them, as well as know about them, but to defend their positions, that's when they start to really know, they really know about um, what they've read. So that sounds really interesting. I think also having the humility to lead by example in that way and, and to say, do you know what, I'm not the expert here. Because so as well as going away and thinking through why I may have this, this view or this philosophy or why I approach this in this way, I'm also going to go and read around other views and other ways because actually I may at some stage change my mind about this. It is unlikely if it's something that I'm, you know, really, it is really, really rooted in research or, or is, is, you know, seems, seems pretty strong, but always having that openness and humility to be able to say, do you know what? Change my mind about that. I was wrong. And here's why, um, or here's what I have now read or learned that may have perhaps not changed my view, but perhaps my view has been refined over time because I've now read this or I've gone away and read more. And actually going back to the whole, you know, how we build that schema, the more I read about something, the more I know. And actually if I had a misconception about something and perhaps my professional learning has helped overcome that, just like we would, you know, we will say to, to, to colleagues, we plan, don't we? We plan a, a curriculum or a lesson with misconceptions in mind. And we think, right, what might our children think about this? In which case, how am I going to make that really, really clear? I think we can have the same mindset when we're planning CPD, but also the same openness as a reader that actually, if I'm reading this and it is changing my mind, that's a really positive thing, actually, if I'm going to be a better practitioner or a better leader as a result of that, that can only be good. It, it reminds me of the first time I read about Desirable Difficulties. It was in David Dye's What If Everything You Knew About Education Was Wrong? And it was so counterintuitive and so 
was like, no, th th this can't be a thing. I, I immediately said, no, he's wrong. No, no way. And, and then by the time I'd gotten to the learning scientists, I'd read enough about it to actually think, okay, here's how this applies to my practice in the classroom. And it was like a light bulb, but it, it wouldn't have been possible without reading four or five different people and um, talking about the same idea, but in a slightly different way. The more times we hear a message, the more chance we have to tie those pieces together, you know, because there's definitely an argument that there are too many education books. And I don't think that's the case because you don't have to read them if you don't want to. But those who do can develop a hopefully more rounded picture because quite often books will and articles will have a well-rounded argument or a well-constructed argument, you know, eight times out of 10. And it goes beyond what a tweet or a blog post can, can give you because someone's had to really think about what it is they want to say, you know, and particularly when they write it with the, the clarity Chris writes with, they've really refined, here is the essential stuff that you need to know. And yeah, so I think that's definitely um, something worth considering for those, for those, particularly for those teachers who are going to be engaging with academic reading for the first time as part of your book club, but I think the profession as a whole. Thinking back to what we were discussing a little while back, is there any temptation at some point to say, you know, this book club's been going a while, year, two years in, and you think, we're going to try and we're going to, I'm going to get a book that I know doesn't necessarily sit in particularly good harmony with the core tenets that we believe to be the case at our in our mat, be it relating to behavior management or just philosophy of education or whatever it might be, just to stir the pot a little bit, just to see whether people can defend the other side of the argument, whether they do understand the other, the arguments that disagree with theirs and why that they maybe don't make the sense that they think they should do. Is, is that something you'd consider or is that something you think would be a bit risky for a book club? No, absolutely something that I'd consider. And, and I think when, in, when you invite colleagues to, to defend their position or, or to articulate their rationale is probably a better way of, of thinking about it. Then you, again, you, you're really harnessing that, that collective capacity to bring other people's perspectives to, to enhance your own practice. But I think a discussion like that needs to be in an environment that feels psychologically safe um, and so I think that the time will come for that and it might be that that's something that our head teachers choose to do in their own um, academies or maybe there are some you know controversial questions after each book club session so that's the kind of thing perhaps I would have done well I certainly would have done as a head is right here's four statements that are that I'm putting in front of you about that text or about this paper argue with me or agree or disagree or, or tell me why but I think we have to build psychological safety in a forum like that before we can perhaps throw that in there um, but absolutely would love to be able to say you know to, to come back in 12 months time and say do you know what we're in a position where we've come together as a as a group of academies we've built on that collaborative culture that's already there that's already kind of um you know a golden thread throughout everything we do 
And actually it's grown to such a point where we can have professional dialogue, discussion, debate and disagreement and do it in a really robust way, but in a really supportive and psychologically safe way. Um, but yeah, for sure, I think there's real value in that debate and dialogue. And actually, that's one of the things I really like about um, whether it's Twitter or whether it's the professional conversation that you have just in and around your own team and your colleagues, is that's really healthy to debate that. Absolutely. I, I really like the way that you described uh, I won't say corrected, though, I think because you, you wouldn't put it in those terms necessarily, but I think you it's the right way of looking at things. I said, kind of defend your position. And you immediately said, like, well, I think articulate your rationale is a better way of looking at things. And I immediately thought, yeah, you're dead right there, because there's something immediately combative about describing something as defend your position. And I guess this shows how much you've thought about how you want to conduct something like this because you've mentioned a couple of times there about the need for it to be psychologically safe and the way you can develop that sort of psychologically safe environment is through careful language choices relating to talking about one's position rather than and how you know the rationale behind it and whether you can put words to it compared to my slightly brute force defend your position or attack this or attack that. So yeah, um, you've, you've made me think a bit more about my language there. I appreciate that. The other thing I'd mention is I, um, when you were talking about discussion points there, it took me back to, I think I must've been about 18 or 19 years old when I read, um, I think it was the first time I'd seen this in a book or the first time I'd noticed it at least it was the end of the handmaid's tale after the epilogue part which is set in some some historical symposium there was a, se a selection of questions for book clubs it's like book clubs just describe this and after that i think i read something some similar some fiction that was similarly dystopian and i noticed the same thing and i now wish that those were at the end of every book because it as, as a way of looking back across what you're reading it's a fabulous thing i just wonder whether there might be more um, edgy book authors that start to think at the end of the book here are a load of questions for discussion relating to um, what's been written before that just for this sort of purpose yeah and I think one of again one of my what's something that I see as a key responsibility of mine is to be able to pull together and distill some of the key points from perhaps books or papers or research, but also um, to quote the, the curriculum queen, in my view, uh, Christine Council, is crafting people's readiness. So, okay, we can craft the readiness before we read the text. It's something I can do because we might have colleagues who would join the book club having not read the text at all. So how do I craft their readiness to engage in that conversation in that space? Um, with some kind of, of context coming into it. Equally, as a reader, how do I craft my readiness to engage fully with that text? But also, you know, potentially for, for education authors, how do we craft colleagues' readiness to be able to engage with it beyond having read the book? Um, because we can read and read and read, but equally it can be read and go back on a bookshelf, never to be seen again. 
um, arguably, if, if it's a, a really impactful text that's really applicable to your practice, that won't be the case. But actually, how do we help scaffold and prompt work that comes after and the discussion that's ongoing? Um, because, I mean, you know, we could talk for, for a whole other um, podcast about the whole lethal mutation risk around, you know, colleagues reading and thinking, okay, here's my checklist then to apply this and let me just go and put all these things in every lesson I'm ever going to teach ever again. But we can, we can support colleagues, really well-intending colleagues to not, to not do that um, by really scaffolding those conversations in a way that's really supportive. What's come across really strongly during this chat is how much you've thought about the implementation of this. And I think, you know, it's, it's destined to be successful because you put the legwork in, you know, and I'm really looking forward to 12 months time asking, you know, how have things gone? Um, and just on, on, on the last thing we were talking about, you know, reading things you don't like, I'm hopeless. You know, I, I'll sit and I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll write straw man, straw man, straw man all over these papers, even though, you know, they're not. So I, I definitely need to learn how to be, you know, more constrained. You know, I'm doing it on my own, but I still shouldn't huff and puff as much as I do. And um, so, yeah, really, really looking forward to that. I think there are a few things that Chris and I would like to ask just out of interest. And um, the first thing is, if you had to pick what has been the most interesting book about education you've read so far? In terms of about education, I would say the, the, the most interesting book that's changed my perspective, maybe, on education is um, Thanks for the Feedback, which um, it, what, what that's done for me is, as a teacher, made me reflect on effective feedback for learners. As a leader, it's made me reflect on how feedback is given, but also how it's received. So we spend so much time teaching our teachers to give feedback, teaching our leaders to, to give feedback. But I don't think perhaps, and what, the, what this book made me really reflect on is, do we dedicate enough time teaching our learners, teachers and leaders how to receive feedback well. And it certainly made me step back and think when you go into that defensive mode over something that you've written or something that you've read, why am I being defensive about that? And is that because I've got a particular blind spot, be it in my emotional literacy, be it in my, um, in my pedagogical frame of reference? If I'm getting defensive, Let's unpick why am I receiving it in that way? Um, so it's not directly perhaps education in terms of pedagogy and practice, but actually it made me, it was, I found it really powerful to reflect on education through the lens of that book. Yeah, some, sometimes some of the best education ideas I have come from reading things that weren't anything to do, but then a spark has gone off. And like, oh, yes, that, that, that connects. Yes, that, that sounds excellent. And I've, I've already lined that up on Audible as one of my summer reads. Along those lines, have there been any books that have particularly challenged you or caused you to, that, yeah, that have contradicted what you hold to be the case and that have really made you change your thinking for those reasons? So I always thought or, or liked to have thought that I was a really um, open and inclusive um, leader with no kind of fixed mindsets on 
um, I don't know, staffing structures or, or working hours or, or whatever it might be. And I always thought I was really open and supportive in that way. And I think I always was on a, on a relational level with, with colleagues individually. But when I read um, Emma Turner's Let's Talk About Flex, what that challenged me to step back and look at is actually I probably have previously had some bias around um, what is just the, the, what you feel is the norm or the default in terms of full-time, part-time, flexible working or, or what that's defined as. And when I read um, Let's Talk About Flex by Emma Turner, I thought, wow, I've never, I've always kind of put things in boxes, I think, in that sense, unnecessarily so. And I think what that, that really challenged me to think about was how creative or innovative we could be in order to really, really support some of the most skilled and expert practitioners that I've ever had the privilege to work with, how can we keep those colleagues in the profession um, by learning more about how we can support people to work flexibly? Um, so that really challenged me as a leader, I think, in, in that way, and actually made me acknowledge bias that I definitely had subconsciously, definitely. This has been fascinating. I reckon we could go on, like you say, for there are a few podcasts. So hopefully this won't be the last time we have a chance to sit down and chat. All that's left to say is thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much for the invite. It's been a, about a whale of a time. Thank you. <laughs> Our pleasure. Thank you, Chris. No worries. Cheers. And to everyone at home, thanks for listening.